there was a pretentious male who was telling his colleagues about a trip he took to Africa on a great white hunt. And he told his colleagues with some male pride, we were flying into the coast of Africa and our small plane crashed in the surf near a small island. It was horrible for Margaret. But it was fine for me because I had trained an undergraduate school in the Navy SEALs and was able to hold my breath for 90 seconds underwater and to make flotation devices out of our clothing. We then swam ashore. We had no food for days. It was horrible for Margaret. But it was fine for me because I had attended the outward bound training and had also been an instructor and we foraged for berries and small roots and were able to survive. We were then captured by savages, taken to the lower end of the island and tied up and stripped and beat and humiliated verbally and all kinds of unimaginable atrocities were attended to us. It was it was horrible for Margaret. But it was fine for me, for I had pledged a fraternity at the University of Texas. <laughs> Once again, the University of Texas, not solely singled out, except it happens to be a major university in this state for fraternity hazing. There was an editorial in one of the city's two major uh, newspapers this week referring to frat brats. Now, what I want to talk about today is a continuing of masculine psychology and uh, using that introductory story and the fact of fraternity hazing being such a chronic and continuing problem in each and every generation and try to fashion something about masculine psychology. In addition to that, I want to talk about why it is that we continue uh, to rest more assuredly in our animal nature than in our souls and Taking a quotation from Carl Jung, I want to use this really as the thesis of my talk this morning. Nature does not care about higher consciousness, neither does society. Society is only interested in achievement, and that for the most part posthumously. The son, her brother, has to be not mother in his development. He must develop his own ego identity, that is, his self-image. But in addition to that, he has to develop a gender identity that is different from mother. So not only does he have to differentiate himself from mother, as does uh, the female child, but he has to separate from her by being her gender opposite. And so in order to do that, he needs 
modeling and bonding with another male in order to be weaned from her and to be shown the larger world of masculinity which is in contrast to the narrow, more narrow world of his initial experience which is of the feminine. And so we develop masculine psychology from the beginning of being not feminine. Now, we do know also, of course, from both biology as well as psychology that there is something androgynous about both the body and the psyche. That is to say that there is a recessive genetic structure of female in every male and that there is a recessive genetic structure of a male in every female. As a matter of fact, evidently in the beginning with the chromosome um, structure that all fetuses actually begin as female and some because of this mysterious uh, chemical uh, organism, some become male and some stay female and therefore we both carry the recessive nature of the opposite gender within us physiologically as well as psychologically. And so becoming not mother means to separate from the feminine. So the difficult thing about becoming human is that the first half of our life we must become our gender. But in order to become whole we must incorporate and relate to the contra-sexual dimension of life in order to become whole. So I'm fond of saying the first half of life is dedicated to becoming male or female. The second half of life is dedicated to becoming a person. In order to become a person rather than an animal or just a male or a female, it requires the development of a higher consciousness. But nature is not interested in higher consciousness, nor is society. Society is primarily interested in achievement and that posthumously. So males begin their journey by becoming not female and trying to bond through the modeling of masculinity. And one of the things that we talked about last week and that we see with the reemergence of the uh, feminine within masculine psychology with sort of centered in the now beginning popular movement of Robert Bly and a gathering of men. I have not participated in a gathering of men, but I did see the Bill Moyers documentary on the educational channel concerning Robert Bly's movement of the gathering of men, as well as having ordered and received the transcript and having read it in some detail and talked with some males who have attended the gathering of men. And one of the tenets of the gathering of men is to say that there is something uh, extraordinarily problematic about men of this particular generation, the post-war generation. Let's maybe even go back a little farther to the post-depression generation of males. And that is that something new happened, and that was that we began to break down what I'm going to call the apprentice feudal system of rural America, where 
young boys worked with their fathers in their profession, either in farming or ranching uh, or within the factory or the family business, so that we had, because of the depression and the necessities of the breakdown of much of the cultural uh, patterns of those days, and then the war, we have a few generations, decades of men now who didn't have fathers present to do modeling and bonding. A bonding in the sense of a man bonding with his father uh, on the basis of a shared vocation and worldview. Fathers were absent. Either they were away at war, away working, or they were drunk. Because of the great burden and problem of becoming highly developed consciously, because along with conscious development comes the recognition of problems, and with the recognition of problems comes the polar opposites of decision making, and with that comes a tension, and the definition of that tension is anxiety. Therefore, men who were trying to develop a higher consciousness, which was not something that is naturally rewarding because it creates anxiety and because developing higher consciousness does not pay more nor does it add to the resume, we had a generation of men who came home and became unconscious. It was a way to escape from the problems of the day. And so we had men who were working too long and too hard and when they were home, they were unavailable. One of the problems of anesthetizing oneself with alcohol is that you are unable to problem solve. Either homework problems of the children or domestic problems or relational problems. One of the nice things about being anesthetized is, anesthetized is you don't have any problems. But the dark side of that is you can't solve any that you're denying. Now, I'm not against, uh, how can I be an Anglican priest and be against a bit of wine uh, as part of celebration of life? Uh, I'm not against that. I am, of course, against abusing alcohol, particularly when others are doing it. <laughs> I find it extremely boresome when uh, others are abusing alcohol in my presence. But it was fine for me because I become brighter and more charming <laughs> when I have just a bit of wine. Uh, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion have uh, been called uh, whiskey pillions where there's one, where there are four, there's always a fifth, all of those jokes. Uh, but basically our theology has been that the problem is not in the bottle, it's in the person. You eliminate the bottle, you don't eliminate the problem. And so we have always talked about temperance and responsibility. Now, one of the things that uh, has happened then to the men of our generation, the thesis of the gathering of men by Bly and his group, is that we have a lot of grieving to do over the fact that we never had fathers, that our fathers were simply unavailable to us, uh, either physically absent, alcohol being a great, problem in this culture for men particularly 
but even if they were present and not anesthetized, they were not emotionally present. And one of the problems, of course, about not being mother is that we cannot be nurturing and vulnerable, says uh, the nature system. That there are those who are dividing up the labor and you nurse and nurture, you hunt and gather, and we will become warriors, and the worst thing for a warrior to be is vulnerable. And so when father is trying to model behavior for son, one of the things he models is vulnerability is not appropriate for males. I was in the sixth grade when my father told me that men don't kiss and um, asked me to not kiss him anymore before I went to bed. I've never forgotten that. Uh, I was able to kiss him um, as an adult. I don't want, though, I uh, have a, a critic that I respect greatly who says, be careful of assuming all of a sudden if men start hugging that that's the best form of intimacy. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily wear three-piece suits or something, it's acceptable for masculine behavior to hug. But what we're really talking about is that being a symbol of intimacy, which is the sharing of feelings, fears, failures, and fantasies. Traditionally, this is not something men have been able to do because in order to do that, you're vulnerable. Now, if you think I don't think about these lectures, you watch this. <laughs> men develop out of rituals which through competition bond, that men bond through testing one another's metal through competition in order to defeat a common enemy. This is one of the ways that men are initiated into manhood. The primitives, and I commend to you some of the studies that Margaret Mead did in New Guinea about the puberty rituals for males in New Guinea. The primitives really were about something archetypal, intuitive, in terms of the way that they took adolescent boys, literally would ritualize their coming into adulthood by all of the men, mentors of the tribe, leaving going the hills for a few days, and then coming back and swooping down and stealing the young boys from their mothers, and the mothers would affect hysteria over this fact, all being a ritualized act, and take the boys uh, off into the woods and compete, uh, humiliate, break down, uh, in order to form a community of men uh, to develop the warrior attitude so that they could bond and defeat a common enemy. This is very important. It seems to be natural. Now the reason I told that uh, opening story about it was horrible for Margaret but it was fine for me was because a remnant of this ritual you'll find in college fraternities. And that is to humiliate and break down, steal these young men away from their mothers and their girlfriends, uh, humiliate them, unimaginable atrocities visited upon them, 
in order that they will bond through this competition in order to defeat a common enemy. So there's something wonderful and mysteriously awesome about that ritual. Here's the rub. It is not enacted by mature men. <laughs> the problem with hazing in a college fraternity is that you have 19-year-olds initiating 18-year-olds. And they do not have the maturity and sensitivity to the ritualizing. All they get in touch with is the bestiality and the, the violence and don't have the wisdom and the maturity to go with it. So I do not want to be misunderstood. I'm not supportive of hazing in college fraternities, even having been through it and participated. And having a child who is now soon to be 20 having just recently gone through it and have been initiated into it. I am not for fraternity hazing because it's enacted by adolescence upon adolescence. And it winds up not ultimately being a ritual, but it, it ultimately can be a very scarring experience of humiliation uh, and rejection. If that ritual was enacted by men over 50 to 18 and 19 year old boys, then it might have some value. I think probably on the natural side of things it has value anyway because there is something about the ritualizing of that. Men seem to need ritualizing of their manhood in a way women don't. I don't know the explanation of that. I know the theory and that is that women have such a clear biological initiatory right that with the beginning of menstruation that women are very clearly girls become women in an instant. And society sort of recognizes through the advent of the menstrual period that this little girl is now a woman. Where men seem to have to go out and defeat an enemy, achieve in order to be recognized as men. Nature does not care about higher consciousness, neither does society. Society is only interested in achievement, and that for the most part posthumously. There is something about achievement for males that evidently is part of our initiatory process into adulthood. In Robert Johnson's book on masculine psychology entitled He, where he takes the Arthurian legend as a mythological uh, uh, understanding of the development of masculine psychology, he says that every male must conquer a red knight. Now, of course, the goal of conquering the red knight is in order to get that finished. But because we have such, such a natural urge as males uh, to compete and overcome, and because society does not reward higher consciousness, nor does nature, we men believe that if we defeat one red knight, then if we defeat a thousand, we'll be even more masculine. And we will do so at the expense of our own health. For achievement and recognition is preferable uh, to good health. Uh, we would sell our very souls, and I think I mean that literally, and I do mean we, I don't mean them. Priesthood does not denuder one. 
uh, masculinity is still a part of my own sense of how many red nights must I conquer in order to finally rest and say I have achieved. I think maybe four more great halls. <laughs> just, a, just about right. Uh, men must conquer this red knight in order to come into their masculine, masculine the, the initiatory right. The problem that I'm building is that in for contemporary males, particularly in the Christian tradition, is that we don't have any good initiatory rights for males. There is a remnant within the Jewish community of the bar mitzvah, which I think is one of the most wonderful traditions where that the young boy and or the young girl, the bat mitzvah, but even so, I'm focusing on masculine psychology, might even make the argument that I think the bar mitzvah is more important than the bat mitzvah, be that as it may. We don't seem to have in Christianity or in culture a good initiatory right for males. We have one, but it's not a good one. You know what it is. It's the driver's license. <laughs> now, we tried several years ago uh, to do around, around that theme here in the parish a series called Wheels uh, so that we had all the children who were going to be 16 that year had to go through a process here at the cathedral where they had to go visit the county jail and the emergency room uh, to have some instruction on, on the responsibilities of drinking and driving and those kinds of things because the secular initiatory right really for the adolescence uh, in this culture is the driver's license. That's when you get your freedom and you begin to take your place as an adult. That's the only power of course left for parents in raising children um, and that is that key uh, to withhold it as uh, Discipline seems to be the only power left. That's a very powerful thing to do, is to give or withhold the key to the ignition of freedom. We don't have a good cultural initiatory right for males particularly, and we have some remnants of them. High school football is one. Um, once again, it, that kind of humiliation and punishment and competition, there is something natural and, and maybe even good about that. It's not usually, and I don't want to be, but it's sometimes it's not presided over by highly consciously developed males. <laughs> As a matter of fact, and I'm not impugning any program you know about, but let us make a general statement, or maybe I could talk to you about the program I went through in high school football. It was not presided over with highly developed males. As a matter of fact, we had 30-year-old men who had developed consciously to about 18 <laughs> presiding over this ritual with 16 and 17-year-old males. It carried the same humiliation and bonding uh, through testing your mettle and competing against one another in order to unify to defeat the common enemy. So it did have value. I don't want to devalue it, but I want to talk about its darker side, and that is that if it's going to be done as ritual, it needs to be conscious ritual rather than masochism. 
Um, I remember going through two-a-day football practice, not highly developed consciously, but having heard the word uh, masochist and uh, thought that it was very masochistic for us to go. In those days, uh, you had couldn't drink water even though it was 110 degrees and you'd been working for three hours because men don't drink water. I never quite understood that. <laughs> it made you tougher, I guess, evidently. And um, I remember thinking how masochistic this was that I was doing this to myself, you know, and how sadistic it was of the coaches uh, to enjoy it as much as they did. And then I realized later that for a sadist to function, he needs a masochist. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but it is true. So that is one of the remnants, of course, is the high school football for males uh, or high school athletics for males. Another remnant, of course, is the military. And that is when uh, you are initiated into uh, your uh, military branch through your basic training. And I think that too is a remnant of the primitive ritual of taking boys out of their home, putting them with older males who will model for them uh, what it means to be a man in the world, a warrior as it were. I must say that of the three kinds of things I've mentioned of the ritualizing for men, college fraternities or high school football or the military. I think the military probably is more tried and true because it does have occasionally some seasoned, uh, more mature men and it has a long tradition and it does have at least some uh, greater purpose. There is that argument that every uh, adolescent male ought to be required to uh, serve two years in the military. There is something wise about that. I'm not sure I would uh, pick up the banner and campaign for that because it has its implicit dark side too. But what I am saying is that we still struggle for initiatory rights for males and that's what makes it difficult for males to get on with the business of being persons is because they never get to be males. And that is that they spend the bulk of their life living by nature or living by society's demands and they never uh, listen to the higher calling of consciousness. That's not rewarded anywhere in society. Nature does not reward higher consciousness because higher consciousness is competitive with nature. It will control it. If you remember last week, I said one of the things about the male animal is that the male animal has the instinct to inseminate as many women as quickly as possible, females. That is what the male animal and the pride or the herd does, inseminate as many women as quickly as possible. Female, of course, is to attract the most powerful male. That's the instinct of the female. In order to keep the tribe uh, and the herd alive, those are good instincts, but we're not animals, we're human beings. In order to overcome that urge is to develop uh, some control, and that is between what happens between the instinct, which triggers an impulse, are you able to delay uh, that charge between the instinct and the impulse? It takes a high developed consciousness to do that. Uh, nature doesn't particularly reward that. Consciousness can run counter to nature. Nature is what we're put on earth to rise above. 
The second piece of that I think is very important to understand that's very competitive, is that is it is not a natural urge, but also society is not interested in highly developed people consciously either because it is counterproductive. Um, those who are becoming highly conscious are not any longer interested in external achievement. And if people aren't interested in external achievement, a society plays, pays a great, great price for that. And so keeping uh, males producing out of this natural urge uh, to defeat a common enemy seems to work better for them. Um, think of your own business situation, um, be it your firm or your business, that if you were seen in the conference room or your office uh, gathering wool, daydreaming, and your boss comes in and saying, what are you doing? You say, I'm developing consciousness, <laughs> uh, what the reward for that might be. <laughs> and it would be horrible for Margaret. <laughs> I'm not necessarily stating an economic position here. I'm only trying to explain why it is difficult for males to become highly developed consciously. There's such great competition for that and so little reward for it. Now, about the issue of problem solving, problem solving uh, in human relationship and human dynamic requires intimacy in human relationship and human dynamic. Problem solving for systems does not require intimacy, it requires competition and it requires defeat. In other words, if you're gonna solve a problem between two human beings, it will require some degree of intimacy and communication. I'm not talking now about we have a problem together and that is how can we defeat Exxon or the other law firm or the other fraternity, I'm talking about how can we solve the problem between you and me? How can you and I grow in our humanity through solving this problem together? It requires intimacy. Intimacy is sharing of feelings, failures, fears, and fantasies. The, bless our hearts as men, one of the things that's most difficult for us to do in order to do that is that you have to be vulnerable and everything that we've ever been taught runs counter to our being vulnerable. If you are vulnerable, the enemy will defeat you. And so we have to relearn or be reprogrammed as it were because we haven't had very good modeling of vulnerability in our male modeling except by her and she's what we're not supposed to be. So what we've done is ask women to be our vulnerability. And what we wind up doing is asking a woman to be our, to express for us our feelings and fears and failures and fantasies, and we wind up hating each other for that. Now I am making generalities because where this pot gets peppered is through personality. <laughs> And that is to say that I'm really not talking about men and women, I'm talking about the masculine and the feminine, and there are lots of women who were raised by men who have highly developed animuses, that is their masculine side, and there are men who were raised by women who have highly developed anima, which is their feminine side, 
and they have their own particular problems in life, uh, and that is, how does a woman who acts like a man fit into society, and how does a man who acts like a woman fit into society? It's difficult for men who are real men to become persons, anything other than just a man, and women who are real women to become anything other than a woman unless they develop high consciousness and the struggle to understand the human personality and dynamic in order to be able to relate to a realm that does not receive general acclaim or reward, which has to do with intimacy and developing consciousness. Now, the reason I'm interested in this is because I listen to people who are hurting and because I myself hurt and trying to grow up because consciousness creates problems. Children who are just developing consciousness have very little problem. Nature, to just live by instinct, you have no problems except survival. And the more highly developed you become consciously, the more problems you have, which creates more anxiety, which is not something that the human ego or animal enjoys. The babies, there are very few cases of infant insomnia. <laughs> and the more highly developed you become consciously, the more anxious we become uh, because we know too many opposites. What happened in, in the great myth of Adam and Eve is that they came to know the opposites. That's what consciousness was about. They came to know good and evil. Up to that time, they didn't know any opposites. Unconscious people don't know any opposites. So there's no tension. Refusal to develop consciously is a way to keep from being anxious because of the tension of the opposites. And that's why we anesthetize to remain unconscious or we stay immature or instinctual uh, because it hurts too much to be conscious. Uh, that's where the term happy pagan comes from. The bliss of the primitive who has no consciousness. But if you want to be highly developed Consciously, it means that you're going to have problems because unconscious people aren't aware of problems. That's why alcohol works. Now, I'm interested in this because people come to me and talk to me because they hurt and because I hurt in my own life because I don't know whether to stay unconscious and instinctual, which seems to me to work, and it seems to me to be the most popular way to go, the easy way to go, as it were. But I have been called through my faith to the narrow way. The entrance into the kingdom of God, you must come through the narrow way. I mean, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. Well, what do you think about that? What is that all about? What's that teaching about? The achievement of wealth keeps one from developing consciousness, which is a requirement for entering the kingdom of God. In order to get in the kingdom of God, you have to be a person, not an animal. And if you have great wealth or great achievement, you probably do not have the time or energy to develop consciously. 
because you have exhausted psychic energy on acquisition of material. It didn't say it was impossible, it just it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. I have to go through the narrow way, and I've been called to the narrow way as an apostle and as a person. And so I'm very interested about the spiritual journey, understanding that if you're going to be a spiritual person, that doesn't mean that you spend all your time on your knees praying and you've memorized scripture and you know the codes and the creeds and the commandments. I don't know what that means. What it means is that you have been called into a world of radical complexity, um, uh, uh, called into a world of opposites that are seeking union and integration. And so to be a man in this society is very confusing right now. I'm not saying it isn't confusing to be a woman. I'm saying it's confusing to be a man. I know more about that. And this movement of the gathering of men and the reemergence of the feminine within masculine psychology has come about for a reason. I don't know where it's leading. I don't know that it will lead always to a good place, but I do know that a lot of energy is being stirred up that probably will result in some new consciousness that I think is important. It's sort of like my lectures. You know, I really don't know that much more than you do, but I do know how to read and articulate things that will make you think. That's my whole purpose. I don't know that what I say is right or correct, but I do know that if I say it, it stirs stuff up, makes you think, and develops you consciously. But in spite of the fact that there are several hundred people here, do you know that there are places in town where there are thousands of people, and those are the people who are saying, this is the one way. No complexity, no ambiguity, no confusion. That'll fill the summit. <clears throat> the person who is preaching ambiguity in a city of four million will gather up a couple of hundred. You remember that bumper sticker of the Episcopal Church, honk if you love ambiguity. <laughs> Frankly, I don't think this is a better way or the only way. It's just the way I've been called to. And if there are others who are called to that, we'll talk together about that. It is very confusing to be a human being. It is wrought with problems. It is extremely difficult to figure out what it is that we're supposed to be and become. We've been given these instincts as the animals, and yet we've been given the imagination of the gods, and we live in between. I think knowing those opposites creates anxiety. Anxiety is the norm the neurotic people are not the people who are anxious. They're the people who cannot handle the anxiety. And so if you're anxious as hell, hell, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's just the neurotic people who can't handle the anxiety. And what neurotic people who can't handle anxiety do is do destructive things to themselves and others in order to rid themselves of the anxiety. Developing yourself more highly, consciously, does not eliminate the anxiety. It helps you understand its nature and purpose. And it can be transformed into that which makes energy rather than that which destroys it. 
It's the basis of our conversation. I don't think you know any more today about being a man than you did before, but you do know how complex and difficult it is for us men to become human beings. Be patient with us. And you men, be patient with yourselves. But I pray for you and for me that we won't be seduced by nature or society that does not reward developing high consciousness or spirituality. And I hope we can embrace and share with one another our own vulnerability. It won't kill you. What will kill you is chasing achievement. You'll get it posthumously. Amen.